welcome to 2021, although many of you uh, already have been welcomed and listened in the aftermath of the Buckeyes' victory over Clemson in the Sugar Bowl college football playoff semifinal. But this is the first kind of regularly scheduled We Tackle Life podcast of 2021. Bruce Hooley with you and a lot to talk about with the Browns in the playoffs off their win over the Steelers. The Bengals continuing with Zach Taylor. Urban Meyer may be headed to the NFL. That's the problem with a podcast on Black Monday in the National Football League is that by the time I finish this, there could be more coaches fired. There could be rumors of coaches hired. There could be guys turning jobs down. I was ready to start, and another coach got fired. Anthony Lynn of the San Diego Chargers out. So let's see. San Diego, no, see. No, I'm not going to edit San Diego out. Los Angeles Chargers. Atlanta Falcons, Houston Texans, Detroit Lions. Our man Spiels, of course, is uh, on the front lines of picking the Lions' new head coach and new general manager. And no, I'm not going to spill any beans about what's coming up with that because we have a national championship matchup against Alabama to talk about, an NCAA tournament that will be played entirely in the state of Indiana, and, of course, a rematch, Browns-Steelers, We'll play for the second time in eight days on Sunday night in Pittsburgh, this time with advancing in the playoffs on the line. It was dicey yesterday in Cleveland. Browns hung in there and won 24-22, denied a two-point conversion by the Mason Rudolph-led and sometimes Josh Dobbs-led Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought the two-point play the Steelers tried was dumb. Um... I would have put Josh Dobbs in for that because then you don't know if he's going to throw it. You don't know if he's going to run it. You don't know if somebody else is going to run it. But maybe Mike Tomlin wants to play the Browns again, this time with Cameron Hayward and this time with Ben Roethlisberger. Neither of those guys was in uniform or even in Cleveland yesterday when the Browns won that game. Uh, Interesting thing that happened during the game. Uh, Someone from Cleveland who has a podcast. uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the podcast. Uh, She's on Cleveland. Or she's on Twitter as Breezy Cleveland or Breezy Clee. Uh, tweeted something that I was like, yeah, I agree with that. <clears throat> she said the observation was something about Nick Chubb and how low-key Nick Chubb is and how he just does his job. And he never does the feed me gesture, which, which you know, Zeke Elliott does the feed me. Every running back, virtually every running back, does the feed me gesture whenever they have a big carry. And I'm not a big fan of the feed me gesture. I'm not a big fan of the one, two, three, look at me lifestyle. So she tweets this about, that's this is one of the things I love about Nick Chubb. He never does the feed me gesture. And I'm like, noticed as I prepared to retweet it because I agree with it. Although I do retweet many things I don't agree with. They're just thought provoking. It's not an endorsement. But in her case, I did agree with it. And I noted in my comment, hey, I agree with this. What I find interesting is, 1,400 other people agree with it, and I guarantee you that many of those 1,400 are also huge fans of Baker Mayfield and Jarvis Landry, neither of whom comports himself on the field like Nick Chubb. And I realized that I am very happy the Browns made the playoffs, but if I had a preference... It would be that their quarterback and their number one wideout would comport themselves like their starting running back. I just like the fact that Nick Chubb makes a phenomenal run for a touchdown 
and then just hands the ball to the official like, that's my job. That's how Jim Brown did it. That's how uh, Gail Sayers did it. I know, we're going back into the Wayback Machine. Could you talk about somebody who's, you know, relevant? I'm just saying, the older I get, the more uneasiness I have with teams I like winning with guys who act in ways that I don't like or would never put up with from my kids. Uh, And I think with Baker Mayfield, so here's the thing with Baker. He's been playing very well. I think he plays his best when he can control his emotions on the field. Um, I don't like to see him high-stepping and arm-thrusting his way down the field after the Browns make a big play because I just think that's a little bit like a pitcher having to run the bases before going back out to the mound for the bottom of the ninth inning in a one nothing game. I don't want my pitcher exerted like that, and many of them are not in the DH era. And I just think anytime you devote energy to anything other than winning, that's energy misspent somewhere else. So just a personal observation that as the Browns get ready to play the Steelers on Sunday, I definitely want them to win. I definitely enjoy them getting into the playoffs for the first time since 2002. But you can be a fan of a team and not be a fan of everyone on the team. And I'm a fan of Nick Chubb. I'm a fan of, uh, you know, some of the other Browns. Uh, But I'm not a fan of, I'm not a huge fan of Baker. And I'm not a huge fan of Jarvis Landry. I enjoy Austin Hooper. Uh, I enjoy, you know, guys who just do it in a low-key fashion because that's what they're paid to do. They're paid to do it. And I don't need the first down gesture, which almost every wide receiver now, I guess every position group now needs a thing. Running backs, it's feed me. Wide receivers, it's first down. On DBs, it's like the incomplete. They got to do the incomplete signal. They look around to see, did they call me for interference there? (laughs) No, I got away with it. Okay, then incomplete. And the college guys do it, and the NFL guys do it, and I would imagine the college guys do it because the NFL guys do it, and I haven't been to a ton of high school football games. Actually, this year I went to about seven. I haven't noticed guy high school guys doing it. Let's not start it, okay? Let's not put up with that, high school coaches. So congratulations, Brown Steelers, Sunday night. Full compliment to the Steelers. Browns are a better team. I believe firmly the Browns are a better team than the Steelers right now. The Steelers, I know they won their first, what, 11-12? Somewhere along the way, they lost their mojo. They can't run it. They dink and dunk it. They've lost a ton of linebackers. Um, And I just think that the Browns are better. And because the Steelers won't have the advantage of a bunch of fans in uh, Heinz Field, I think the Browns will win this game. I think the Browns will move on. Man, there's nothing like the city of Cleveland when the Browns are in the playoffs. So you know I'm old because I was there for the 86 championship game against John Elway, the 98-yard drive game and the city is just electric and it hasn't had many opportunities to be electric like that for the Browns since then it's electric anytime the Indians are in the World Series or the Cavs are in the NBA Finals but this is a different level of investment for everybody in Cleveland when they win so I'm very happy for the city having worked there for five years just I'd prefer the quarterback be lower key because I like winning and I think that helps you win So we'll see how the Browns and Steelers come out on Sunday. I don't know what the line is, but I feel like the Browns should win the game. I feel like the Browns should win that game because 
as I articulated, the Steelers just have issues. I'm not going to wait till the very end of the podcast and cram the sponsors in like I've been doing. I have notes on my little topic sheet. And the first note after I talk about the Browns getting in is, of course, to remind you about our official and first sponsor of the podcast, Hemisphere Coffee Roasters. Great people. Phenomenal people. I think very soon we're going to be offering a uh, an interesting opportunity for you relative to Hemisphere Coffee and the Bruce Hooley Show on 98.9 The Answer. But the offer stands in 2021 that you get 15% off when you use the promo code WETACKLELIFE in all caps. And I'm excited to talk with Paul and Grace and Andy about some of the things that Hemisphere has scheduled with uh, their coffee partners and their ministry partners in 2021. It's the great thing about Hemisphere is that they buy direct from growers. The levels to that are first you get great coffee. Okay. How would you go to Kroger and get coffee from lands that the soil is just perfectly suited to growing coffee, whether it's Ethiopia, Thailand, Indonesia, Nicaragua, can't do it, but you can through Hemisphere Coffee Roasters. You'll get the 15% off when you use the promo code we tackle life. And you'll know that Hemisphere is helping those communities. And most of you who listen to this because of the faith portion have some degree of respect for people who plug into other people's lives and make it better. Well, that's what you're doing when you patronize Hemisphere. And so please continue to do that. Please continue to let them know that you're a Spielman. Well, not a Spielman listener anymore because Spiels is otherwise engaged with the Lions. But you're a We Tackle Life listener. And let me know at... Uh, Spielman Hooley podcast at gmail.com. Yes, I, I know I have to get the email address changed. I just hate to change it because then everybody who doesn't hear about the change doesn't, their email doesn't get through to me. But let me know if you think the podcast name should change from We Tackle Life. It's got to change from Spielman Hooley. I don't want to brand it Chris if Chris is not here, which he won't be here because he's got to hire a GM and he's got to hire a head coach. Okay, we move on to the Bengals. They did not win. Uh, their season finale yesterday, they got crushed by the Baltimore Ravens, which you could see that coming 20 miles away because the Ravens are really rolling right now. And the Ravens had to win to get in the playoffs. So there was no way the Bengals are winning that game with a backup quarterback. And they didn't win. And so Bengal fans got all salty afterward. Like, oh, look, we're not competitive with the Ravens. Well, no, you're not. But I don't see Zach Taylor as a failure. Uh, here in year two with the Cincinnati Bengals. They they doubled their win total. They did it with Joe Burrow hurt, with Joe Mixon hurt, with all kinds of injuries on the offensive line. They were very competitive in, I don't even remember their second game with the Browns, but they were very competitive in their first game with the Browns. They were competitive in a lot of games, and I think there's not enough there. First of all, there's not enough there to fire Zach Taylor, given their talent, if he worked for 31 other franchises in the NFL. There's certainly not enough there to fire him with Mike Brown, who doesn't pay coaches not to coach. So I think if Bengal fans, if you're thinking they're going, oh, they might fire Zach Taylor, they're never firing Zach Taylor, not after a four, are they four ten and one, four eleven and one? That's not horrible for who they were with the injuries that they had and how competitive they were. And you got guys like Tyler Boyd speaking out in favor of Zach Taylor and Joe Burrow speaking out in favor of Jack Ta- uh, Zach Taylor. Everything with the Bengals, is built around Joe Burrow. It better be. It should be. I guess it it will be. And I think the Bengals are are improving. That's all you can ask 
when you draft number one overall, are we improving? Did we go backwards? They're not. They're not the David Shula Bengals. They're not the um, the Bruce Coslett Bengals. You know, they're uh, they're they're getting better. They're gonna they're gonna be okay. Question for me with the Bengals is: Do they spend that first pick on a lineman, or do they spend it on one of the wideouts that they could get? Because I think they could get Devonta Smith, Jamar Chase. They could get a wideout. And wow. Uh, or, you know, you could go lineman and then second round grab best wide receiver who's there. But you got to give Joe Burrow weapons and you got to protect Joe Burrow. So the Bengals, uh, that's the deal with the Cincinnati Bengals. The Jacksonville Jaguars will pick number one overall in the NFL draft. And they fired Doug Marone today. Uh, they fired their head coach. Uh, didn't want to. They like Doug Marone, but Doug Marone doesn't win enough. So they fired Doug Marone. So now, and again, here we go with the news breaking on the NFL. There's no way any podcast can keep up with it. Many people believe Urban Meyer will be the next coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I would say it would not shock me. would not shock me if Urban is the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. The area of the country, he's got a house pretty close to Jacksonville because of his years at uh, Florida. He's got a boatload of picks. They do have some young talent. It's not been that long that the Jags were in the AFC Championship game against the Patriots. Remember? They're not going to be riding with Blake Bortles anymore, which they haven't been for a while. But that was what held them back then. Now they're getting Trevor Lawrence, or maybe they'll get Justin Fields. Maybe Urban will be like, no, no, I want the Buckeye. So that's why I think it's attractive. Shad Khan, the owner's got... All kinds of cash. He can pay Urban whatever it takes. And it would not shock me if Urban wants to try. At age 56, he's a young man. At age 56, the National Football League would not surprise me one little tiny bit. Uh, Do I think he'd do well? I don't know. Who's his staff? Uh, Is he taking a bunch of guys with him from Ohio State? I would imagine he'd take Corey Dennis. Uh, Ryan Day's quarterback coach, which although Ryan's really the quarterback coach as long as he's there. It wouldn't shock me if Urban ends up with the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I'd like to see it. I would like to see it. A lot of people think, oh, it's not a big enough brand. He's not interested in Jacksonville. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on that. The, the similarity that most of these NFL jobs have, and this is not always the case, is that they all have a franchise quarterback in place. Jags are going to have Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. I'll give you the possibility. Chargers have Justin Herbert set an NFL rookie record for touchdown passes, broke Baker Mayfield's record. Falcons have Matt Ryan. He's got tread left on the tires. Texans have Deshaun Watson. He's phenomenal. And the Lions have Matt Stafford. People don't like Matt Stafford. Matt Stafford's a pretty good quarterback. And the Lions would take a big cap hit letting him go or trading him. Dead cap money is very high, but... Uh, Stafford's there for at least a year. So you could play Stafford next year. If you go eight and eight, nine and seven, even seven and nine, you're probably not going to let Matt Stafford go the year after that. So there's a quarterback in place at all these NFL head coaching jobs. And that's why I think they're going to be really interesting hires. I'm of course most interested in the lions because that's the higher Spiels is making, but the other jobs are not as terrible as uh, is typically the case. Like when you, in those years where the Browns were looking for a new head coach and they had no quarterback, yeah, 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 yeah. Why would you take that job? 
I wondered many times, but, you know, there's only 32 of those jobs, and they all pay pretty well, so everybody wants to take their shot. Everybody thinks in the National Football League they can turn it around. Uh, if you're stuck with a situation that you need turned around legally, then go with Willis Spangler Starling. They are my attorney firm of choice. They're great people. They have wide-ranging expertise, workers' comp, personal injury, wills estate planning, probate, contracts, many aspects of the law I don't even understand. But thankfully, I don't need to because I have a great firm, high in character, high in integrity, high in motivation. And for me, high in relational skills. I don't want to go into a place to talk about something as important as protecting my legal rights and feel uncomfortable because of the environment, because the people seem like, you know, they're looking down on me. I've been in those situations before, but never now that I've found the great people at Willis Spangler Starling. So if look at their website and you'll see they got kind of a fun element to them that makes them unique, makes them relatable, makes them, I think, caring. Uh, their degree of caring comes through a lot when you chat with them. Willis Spangler Starling is the firm. It's on Truman Boulevard in Hilliard, and their website is willisattorneys.com. Willisattorneys.com. Okay, there's your appetizer. We talked NFL. We talked Urban Meyer. One more, one more little side dish before we get to Ohio State and Alabama, and that side dish is the NCAA's announcement this morning that the NCAA basketball tournament will not be played in a bubble because you can't put a bubble over the state of Indiana. Although there's a joke in there somewhere, given my disdain for that state and its basketball reputation. But they are going to play the entire NCAA tournament in the state of Indiana. Not all in the same place. They have six different locations in the state of Indiana. They have uh, Indiana's arena, the dump that it is, uh, Simon Scott Arena. And you say, um, who was Simon Scott? I've heard of Kent Benson. I've heard of Quinn Buckner. I've heard of even, if you're really old, Branch McCracken. But I've never heard of Simon Scott. Was he like an All-American in the Peach Basket days? No. No. Simon Scott Arena is named after Herb Simon, owner of the Indiana Pacers, long time, and his daughter is her married name, Scoat. Okay, so she gave the coin to name the arena in Bloomington, dump that it is. Did I say that? Okay, just wanted to make sure I didn't leave out you know, the most important thing for you to know about Assembly Hall, which is it's a dump. Uh, Simon Scoat is like just... They had the most money, so they got their name on the building. Okay. Uh, Mackey Arena. This will be the, uh, they could call this the elevated floor NCAA tournament because they're using Mackey Arena and they're using Hinkle Fieldhouse. Yes. Hinkle Fieldhouse. Gene Hackman's famous line. I think you will find that the rims here are the exact same height as they are back in our gym in Hickory. Yes. Okay. So you have Mackey Arena, Assembly Hall, that's what I know it as. Sorry, Simon Scott, and not enough money in all the world to make me call it Simon Scott Arena. It's Assembly Hall. And by the way, did I mention? It's a dump. Uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse, where Butler played, where the Hickory Huskers took down South Bend Central in the movie Hoosiers. 
two different courts in Lucas Oil Stadium. And finally, Indiana Farmers Coliseum, which was formerly the Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum, which was formerly Pepsi Coliseum, which was formerly Fairgrounds Coliseum. It is a 6,500-seat arena, and as I I figured, it was probably where Ooey Pooey plays their home games, I-U-P-U-I, affectionately to some, not me, known as Ooey Pooey. Uh, that's the other arena. So they'll have six arenas where they're going to play the NCAA basketball tournament. Ohio State will be in that tournament, but not if they keep playing like they did last night at Minnesota. Wow. That was as as unfun an Ohio State basketball game to watch as any I can remember in a while. Yikes, was that ugly. And here's Chris Holtman's issue, okay? And it's not his problem. It's a problem he has to solve, but it's not a problem with Coach Holtman. Chris Holtman has proven to me that he is a fantastic basketball coach. Fantastic. He makes mid-game adjustments. He has good scouting. He's Players love him. I got no issues with Chris Holtman, but he has issues on this team. And what we are seeing is the reason he's playing 11 guys is because he doesn't know who his best eight are. Now, that is a factor, I believe, of lack of non-conference games like they typically have in a non-COVID season. So he didn't have time to figure out of the six guys I'm playing off the bench who are the three I can really rely on? When I put this guy in, I know exactly what he's going to give me. When I put this guy in, I know exactly what he can do and what he's going to give me. My starting roles are defined. I can count on this guy for 16 a game. I can count on this guy for eight a game. Luther Muhammad, you pretty much knew. You weren't going to get 10 points out of Luther Muhammad. You're going to get solid defense. You're probably going to get six points, okay? Caleb Wesson, eh, probably going to get like 16 points and Seven or eight boards out of Caleb. Andre Wesson, somewhere between 12 and 8 points, you knew what you were going to get, okay? Now, let's come back into this present era. You tell me, what are you going to get from Justice Suing on Wednesday night against Penn State? You don't know, right? What are you going to get from Seth Towns? You don't know, do you? What are you going to get from C.J. Walker? Hmm, no idea. What are you going to get from Eugene Brown? What are you going to get from Sed Key? What are you going to get from Justin Arns? Could get 20, could get three. Pretty hard to coach a basketball team that way. Musa Jallo, you going to get 10 from Musa or one? You don't know. Dwayne Washington, is he going to make five out of seven threes like he did last night? Or is he going to shoot one for nine like he did at Northwestern? Kyle Young, is he going to score 14 or is he going to score five like he did last night? No idea, right? You got no idea? What do you think Chris Holtman has? He's got no idea either. So that's hard to coach a team that way. Because for big portions of the game, you're kind of taking a survey. All right, I put Gene Brown in. Is this the Gene Brown who hit three big threes against UCLA? Or is this the Gene Brown who's probably swimming uphill a little bit in the Big Ten Conference? Last night it was the latter. C.J. Walker, if you had to name one guy who really, if he turned it on, would help Ohio State immeasurably, it's the point guard. No team can survive, as I wrote on PressProsMagazine.com. No team can survive 
a point guard who plays 24-ish minutes with two assists and two points. You can have two points, but you better have eight to ten assists or six to ten assists. You can't have two and two. That's death. And it was for Ohio State last night. This big stiff from Drake that transferred in at center, seven-footer. He made Ohio State look silly. 27 points, 14 boards for Liam. Liam, I can't remember his last name. Uh, Robbins, maybe? I don't know if that's a B actor or an, a center at Minnesota. But whoever it was, he made Ohio State look silly last night. And yes, did it go through my mind? Holy smokes. If a kid who transferred in from Drake can score 27 and 14 against Ohio State, what is Luca Garza? or Kofi Coburn, or any of Wisconsin's bigs going to do against Ohio State? Yes, I would be lying to you if I said that thought didn't cross my mind. And you can better believe it crossed the mind of Chris Holtman. There's no doubt about that. Now, tomorrow I have a conference call scheduled with my friend Chrissy from AUI Info in this era of pandemic, vaccine. Are you covered for your health insurance? Uh, true confession, my wife got tested for COVID. The test was 150 bucks. Wow. Now, our insurance didn't cover it, but maybe yours will. Maybe if you're an employer, you'd like to know going forward, if we ever have anything else come up like this again, and there's talk of, oh, there's this strain and that strain and whatever, you want to attract the best employees or you want to have the best health insurance for you and your family? I don't know where I'd begin to go to look up the coverage and the co-pays and the this. And the, well, I do know. AUI Info. Because, see, that's the ticket is if you know Chrissy and Steve at AUI Info, then as a business owner, you can get all those questions answered. And they're not a firm that once you deal with them and once the, the health insurance companies pay them, notice I said you don't pay them, once they get compensated, they don't cease to take your calls or cease to engage with you. They're always engaging, always available, always reaching out to forge that relationship. That's why auiinfo.com, when it comes to health insurance questions or HR questions, they are the most valuable resource I can imagine. For someone who owns a business or someone who is just a, a business in and of themselves, a lawyer, a consultant, a plumber, a doctor, whatever, auiinfo.com, great people to know. Remember that name, go to their website, find out what they can do for you via their chat feature, which is very easy to engage with. Okay, now we've gotten all the side dishes and all the appetizers out of the way. Let's talk about what most of you really, really care about, which is Monday, January the 11th, Ohio State against Alabama in the college football playoff national championship game. It's in Miami Gardens, Florida, which is eh, halfway between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, it is where Ohio State played Clemson in the first bowl game of the Urban Meyer era. I can't think if they've played there since. I don't think so. The game will be played on natural grass, so that always begs the question, what's the footing like? I watched the Orange Bowl the other night. That was Texas A&M and North Carolina, and I don't recall guys slipping and sliding around. That'll be frustrating because I want them to have a good track. Both Ohio State and Bama played on artificial turf in the semifinal. This game has the potential to be a phenomenal game, a 
transcendent game, an iconic game. It has the potential to me to be like Ohio State Miami in 2002, like Texas and USC in 2006, 7, whatever that was. Because the field's going to be flooded with NFL players. Both those games I alluded to were. Because there are big-time playmakers on both sides, defensively and offensively. There are, um, and this is one place where it differentiates, the Ohio State-Miami game. There are coaches on both sides in this game who are going to be Hall of Fame coaches. There's no doubt about Nick Saban. I, I have that much belief in Ryan Day. I really do. He's a special coach. He thoroughly outcoached Clemson, and it was a big advantage for Ohio State to have played only six games going into that game. Clemson had just no clue for some of the things Ohio State did in that game because Ohio State didn't have to show those things to get to 10-0, 11-0, whatever. So that was a big advantage. Now, will it be a big advantage against Bama? Yeah, it'll be an advantage. I don't know if it'll be a big advantage because Ohio State had to reach into its bag of tricks with that 21 nothing second quarter to put Clemson in the rearview mirror. So they had to show some things that they wouldn't have shown to beat Indiana or to beat Northwestern or to beat anybody else on their schedule. Nick Saban is a defensive guru. Ryan Day is an offensive guru. So that's a great matchup. Bama can score like crazy. Ohio State can score like crazy. If I had to come down to one factor in this game, that if I said... Okay, if this happens, this team will win. If Ohio State rushes the ball with significant success, where they can get into second and six, third and three, if they can move the ball on the ground against Bama with some consistency, uh, Trey Sermon doesn't need 200 yards, he doesn't need 300 yards. But if Trey Sermon rushes for more than 100 yards... And it's a progressive accumulation of rushing yards. You can't have like an 80-yard touchdown run and then have 25 more carries and get 20 yards. But if Trey Sermon averages more than 4.2 per carry, I think Ohio State wins the game. But I think it'll be close. The other thing I want to know is, can Ohio State's defensive front make Mac Jones uncomfortable like they made Trevor Lawrence uncomfortable? If they can, Ohio State wins the game. Now, if Bama can protect Mac Jones and Bama can get Najee Harris running the ball like he has run the ball late in the year and all year, then, well, advantage Bama. Here's one thing that Justin Fields can do that Mac Jones can't, and that's hurt you running the ball. Mac Jones is not going to hurt you running the ball. That's the Bama quarterback. He's a pocket passer. Justin Fields can hurt you many, 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 many ways. He doesn't have to throw six touchdown passes, although he could. But he can throw for three and run for three. And he can convert third and eight, bail out of the pocket, get a first down. Now, I actually didn't have a very high opinion of Bama's defense until this morning, because the game that sticks in my mind with Bama is Bama-Mississippi, where Mississippi scored 48 points. And I thought, well, I know they average 50 a game, but maybe they're beating everybody, giving up 35, 30, 37. That's not the case. The Mississippi game's an outlier. They have shut down some pretty good offenses, including A&M's offense. Georgia's offense, too, but that was before Jade 
JT Daniels, quarterback, Georgia. Um, so, but still, they're undefeated for a reason in the SEC. Can't ignore undefeated in the SEC. So I could see a way Bama could win, and I can see I can see several ways Ohio State can win. Bama's got to protect Mac Jones. They don't do that, they lose. Ohio State could win the game with Justin Fields' legs. They could win the game with Justin Fields' arm. They could win the game with Trey Sermon's legs. They could win the game by playing lights out on defense. Bama has a corner, Patrick Sertain, who I think they'll try to get on Chris Olave every single time, but Ohio State's smart enough to scheme around that. Likewise, Bama's smart enough to scheme around Sean Wade on Devonta Smith every time, and I'm not sure if Sean Wade's on Devonta Smith every time. It'll slow down Devonta Smith. Ohio State's best chance of slowing down Devonta Smith is to get to Mac Jones, to not have the time to get it to Devonta Smith. Now, Steve Sarkeesian, the Bama offensive coordinator, has been hired as the head coach at Texas. He's going to stay with Bama through the title game. Bama's done this a bunch of times, a bunch of times. Jim McElwain was their OC, got hired at Florida. He stayed with Bama through the bowl game. Jeremy Pruitt, defensive coordinator. Uh, let's see, they've done it. Mike Loxley, offensive coordinator, ended up at Maryland, already been hired at Maryland when they played in the title game. The only time they've had a guy leave, and this was Saban's choice, not the coaches, was Lane Kiffin. They kicked Lane Kiffin out, and they didn't win the title. So we'll see whether Sarkeesian's mind is divided. But I look at Sarkeesian, and I think, if I'm going to Texas – the best thing I can do to help myself at Texas is to coach a masterful game against Ohio State because who's taking more players out of Texas than Ohio State that Texas wants? I'm sure Oklahoma's getting some. I'm sure Nick Saban's getting some. But Ohio State's right there, man. Baron Browning, J.K. Dobbins, uh, Quinn Ewers, his quarter, Garrett Wilson. They're getting all kinds of guys out of the state of Texas. So if Steve Sarkeesian wants to go into Austin and say, hey, look, look at my offense. Look what we did to Ohio State. That's big for him. So we'll see. There's also, many of you may not know this, considerable intersection between Nick Saban and his illustrious coaching career and Ohio State. Nick Saban was fired. In his illustrious coaching career, Nick Saban fired one time at Ohio State after the 1981 season. He'd been at Ohio State two years. He was on a defensive staff that gave up a ton of yards. Earl Bruce was the head coach. They beat Navy in the Liberty Bowl, and Earl purged the staff defensively. Fired Randy Hart. Fired Pete Carroll. Fired Nick Saban. Yeah, I know. You don't want to fire Nick Saban and Pete Carroll. But he did. Then Nick Saban, who, by the way, graduated from Kent State, uh, Nick Saban... Later on, brings the Michigan State Spartans into Ohio Stadium in 1998. Ohio State is number one in the BCS. Joe Germain's at quarterback. They are rolling downhill, and they are like a juggernaut. That's one of the best teams Ohio State's ever had. I'm not talking about best team they've ever had that didn't win a title. I mean ever. Spiels and I have had many conversations about could Ohio State's 2002 team beat Ohio State's 1998 team. And honestly, I'd take the 98 team. I would. They were that good. Nick Saban brings Sparty into Ohio Stadium, and they were not highly thought of. They were just like a, you know, pretty decent Big Ten team, but up and down. They were Michigan State. Of course they were up and down. And with Plaxico Burris at wide receiver, Cedric Irvin at running back, and Bill Burke, a left-hander from the state of Ohio at quarterback, Sparty threw 
a bounce here, a bounce there, and some they're good. They beat Ohio State in 98. I never thought that Ohio State team would lose a game. Couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. That's Nick Saban. He cost Ohio State a national championship in 98. That team did not lose again. And then, of course, 2014, he's at Bama and Urban and uh, Zeke Elliott and the uh, Cardale Jones Express uh, runs over Bama in the Sugar Bowl college football playoff semifinal. And then Ohio State, that was the national title game right there. Oregon, I know Oregon was favored against Ohio State, which is like stupid because Oregon was never winning that game. And I, I predicted Ohio State would score 60 points against Oregon. And if they hadn't fumbled it a couple times, they would have. This is a much, much tougher deal beating Bama after you beat Clemson than it was beating Oregon after you beat Bama. Clemson semifinal, Bama semifinal, pretty comparable because that Bama team was one, Ohio State was four. This Clemson team was two, Ohio State was three. This Clemson team's got championship chops from a couple of years ago and from losing in the title game last year. So that's comparable. The semifinal opponent's comparable. This Bama team is way better than Oregon. That Oregon team, name the pros on that Oregon team. DeForest Buckner and Marcus Mariota. Those are the two I can name you. Okay? Might have had another guy on the defensive line, but not a bunch of pros on that Oregon squad. Bunch of pros on this Bama squad. Bunch of pros on this Ohio State squad. Ohio State's not at a talent disadvantage going into this game. Not at all. Not at a coaching disadvantage, not at a talent disadvantage. This is a toss-up game. And it would not surprise me one tiny bit if this game comes down to a field goal at the end. Wouldn't surprise me one bit. I really think this game is unique in that it has the capacity to be, of course, extremely exhilarating to win and just soul-crushing to lose. You know, I mean, you could say, well, every game's like that, Bruce. Not really. Like when you're getting ready to go play at Iowa, you're not thinking you're going to get beat 55 to 30 something. That's soul crushing. But you're not going into that game with like a week of hype going, man, I wonder if they can beat Iowa. You're not intrigued by that kind of a matchup or the Purdue game the following year. This game, you can look at it a thousand different ways. Well, what about this matchup? What about that matchup? Uh, I don't know. That's why you do, you invest emotionally in this matchup so much that to win is exhilarating and to lose is soul-crushing. It just is. But keep in mind, it's just a football game. It's not life and death, okay? So uh, there we go. I will predict the game a little bit later on. It's foolish to predict it a week out because uh, why why do that? I'm, I got an idea which way I'm going, but uh, but I will let you know later on in the week. Okay. Now the faith portion of the podcast. 2021 is here. It's a new year. And I've been watching, while my uh, wife and daughters have been out of town for a bit, I've been binge watching this show on Discovery called uh, Alaska, The Last Frontier. It's about these uh, people in Alaska who live on a homestead, 600-acre homestead, and they are all entirely self-sufficient. And uh, basically their whole life is four months of summer, you're prepping for eight months of winter. That's the premise of the show. You're hunting, you're cutting wood, you're driving cattle here to the head of the bay for pasture land, bringing them, growing hay on your own homestead, harvesting the hay, stocking the hay, bringing the cattle back, feeding the cattle all through winter. That's the whole show, okay? It's two families, and 
they're always prepping for winter. So I'm watching this, and I'm intrigued by this. And they talk a lot about, boy, during eight months of winter, it really gets boring. And, you know, only four hours of daylight and la, 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 la. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, once you got that hay in the barn and the firewood cut and your freezer full of food, that wouldn't be a terrible way to live. Because you could just, <laughs> literally and figuratively, chill for eight months. Now, I know they're not sitting around doing nothing. They don't have any TVs. They don't have indoor plumbing. I wouldn't want to go to the outhouse in the dead of winter. But I thought to myself, boy, you could have an awful lot of time just sit there and read. And you could read the Bible, and you could, like, just, that would be so cool to just have that time. Because through listening to this series of messages recently, I have been astounded how many amazing scriptures there are in the Bible that I honestly, confession, didn't know were there. Now, I've not been a devout reader of the Bible for a long, long time, but I've been a pretty devout reader of the Bible for a fairly significant period of time. And yet occasionally I hear John MacArthur or Robert Jeffers or Chuck Swindoll or somebody preach, and they'll maybe not even have the scripture that they cite as their main verse. Maybe it's just a supporting verse. And I'll be like, whoa, where was that? And where, how did I miss that? And then I'll go back and I'll be like, well, wait a minute. I read that and I highlighted it. And so I just think that's so cool about the Bible. So in this parallel I'm trying to draw here between these Alaska uh, homesteaders and us, their life, their survival is about doing the work during the year to prepare for what's coming at the end of the year. And a lot of people look at, if you have a respect for God or a thought in your mind of God about um, your eternity, your eternal home, and you know where will you end up and why will you end up there, and are you saved or are you not saved? And I struggled with that throughout a lot of years of my life. And I had that mistaken, horribly wrong notion of, well, it's going to come down to whether I'm good enough. Did I comport myself right? Did I talk the way God wants me to talk? Did I treat people the way he wants me to treat them? It's all about how did I behave, right? How did I behave? Did I do the work? Did I do the right work? Did I do enough work? Well, that's, of course, as I've tried to make clear to you and as Chris has tried to make clear to you, it's not ever good enough because God is perfect. He accepts no standard other than perfection. We can't ever be perfect. Every single person listening to this podcast right now is disqualified from being good enough to go to heaven. But, don't turn it off, every single person listening to this podcast also can and will, I guarantee you, will go to heaven if you put your trust in Jesus and his perfection and claim it as yours because that's the free gift of salvation. It's there for everyone. So in the course of that concept and that truth, I'm listening to a John MacArthur message the other day, and he cites a verse from John chapter 6. And I'm like, wow, i got to share that with the listeners on the podcast because that's an awesome verse, and it's so simple, and it clears up this question of, am I good enough? What work am I supposed to do? Okay, i got to be about the work of God. What work is that? 
And essentially, that is exactly the scenario, the question that's presented to Jesus in John 6, right after he fed the 5,000 people from the, whatever it was, three fish and four, two, lo- two loaves and four fishes or whatever it was that he magnified, multiplied to feed the 5,000. He gets in a boat. He goes to the other side of the lake. The people are looking for him. They can't find him. They finally find him on the other side of the lake. And then they say, hey, you know, hey, where you been? How you been? How'd you get over here? And he's like, look, I know why you're looking for me. You're just looking for me because I fed you a nice meal there yesterday, and now you want me to feed you again. But you need to be concerned with, like, the bread of life that doesn't spoil. And he's using this salvation and serving God and trusting God's plan for your life as bread that never spoils. That's sustaining. That's fulfilling. That's what life is all about, is what he's saying. And... They say to him, John 6, 28, then they asked him, what, was, what must we do to do the works God requires? You hear that? This is the question I asked for many years. This may be the question you're asking. This is the question that Satan confuses people with. Oh, what have you done? Well, why, would you, why would you be saved? Look at your lousy life. Look at how mean you are to people. Look at your language. Look at the times you've lied. Look at this. Look at that. Look at, you can never be forgiven for that. That's Satan's number one tool is to beat you up with your failure. So these people, they probably feel the same way. And they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires. What do we got to do? Tell me. We want to do it. John 6, 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's it. That's the work. To believe. Now that believe is, I didn't look up the Greek version of the word. I'm pretty certain that if you look up the Greek or you look up the whatever, the Hebrew, the word, believe not only means like intellectually believe, but it means trust. Place your trust in. Like, you wouldn't jump out of an airplane at 50,000 feet if you just believed that sometimes parachutes open. No, you're pretty certain. You've tested it, right? You're absolutely certain if you're skydiving, that parachute is going to open. Your trust. It's not just a belief. It's a trust. That's what he's saying. When he says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, it doesn't mean like intellectually like, oh, yeah, he came. Yeah, I believe he lived. I believe Jesus lived. I believe he hung on the cross. Okay, I believe it, so I'm good. No, no, no. You got to trust it. You got to trust it. You got to own it. Because here's the thing there's levels to this, all right? When you trust it, deeply trust it, and it's settled in your mind, I don't have to worry about using that swear word. I don't have to worry. You are so thankful for the trust, the belief, the assurance, the guarantee that your sins are forgiven, that you don't want to engage in that behavior anymore. And when you do, you will screw up from time to time. When you do, you'll be so grieved like you would be grieved if, did your parent ever say to you, man, you really disappointed me. Someone who loves you ever say to you, like, 
wow, like, I can't believe you did that. Like, that, that really disappoints me. If that's ever happened to you, you have this sense of guilt and shame and, oh, man, like, what am I doing? Like, um, for instance, well, there are a lot of guys who listen to this podcast who probably are very successful in travel. And I would say probably, you know, hopefully all, but I'm sure a gigantic majority of you do that and you're not screwing around on your wife. Now, why? Why? Well, you can say, well, I know it's wrong. Okay, yeah, it's wrong. That's not why. The reason why is because you would never hurt your wife like that. You would never want to disgrace yourself to your children and your family like that. You would never, if you go to, if you have accountability partners and stuff, you would never want your friends to know, like, you what? What did you do? Like, because why? Because they'd be disappointed in you. Because you would fracture their trust in you. That's where the motivation comes for changing your behavior after you accept Jesus' perfection on the cross. Because you're like, well, how could I do that to him? Like, look what he did for me. Like, I want to show him how gratified I am that he did that for me and that I have this total peace about my eternal security because of what he did. I can't, I can't engage in that behavior anymore. I got, I got to change my friends. I got to change my viewing habits. I got to change the jokes I laugh at. I got to change the jokes I tell. I can't live this double life anymore. It's not, it's not befitting. I don't want to hurt my Savior. I don't want to disgrace my Savior. I, I got his spirit living inside of me, and I can't join the spirit of God to this pornography or this, this bad language or this bad behavior. I can't do that anymore. That's what you'll feel when you really understand the grace of God, the forgiveness, the salvation. And, you know, I just I dig into this incredible books in the Bible of truth preserved over centuries, over millennium. And I read it and I'm like, wow, <laughs> just wow, man. And I'm jealous for the years I didn't spend reading it and the time I didn't spend reading it. I think, what, what was I doing? Like all that stupid half hour I spent with the sports page every morning all those years? Like what? I could have been, I could have been pouring this truth into me. What would that have done for my life? What would that do for my relationship with God? What would that do for my relationship with my wife and my kids and my friends? And what kind of influence could I have? And I don't live with a ton of regret over that, but do I regret it? Sure. Sure I do. So uh, that's what I have for you from the faith portion today. That John 6, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe, and I would add trust, in the one he has sent. So I leave that with you today. It's there for everybody, attainable for everybody, no matter what you've done. That's the message I'm going to emphasize in 2021. And I'm going to try to live it out more so every day so people can see that in me. God bless you. Thanks for uh, joining me today. I appreciate it. Went a little longer than I typically go solo. But um, we had a lot going on. And I am thrilled that you gave me the time to share that faith portion of the podcast with you. Uh, Review the podcast and uh, drop me an email. SpielmanHooleyPodcast at gmail.com. If I can figure out a way to transfer... 
all the emails that we've gotten to another email address. I will do that, but uh, I certainly don't want to lose contact with the people who have been emailing the podcast for the year and a half that we've been doing it. So thanks very much. Talk to you again on Wednesday.